Hello and welcome to the third episode of the Trinity Wolfstone Coming podcast. I'm your host, Harry O'Brien. In this episode, I'm speaking to Derek Mooney. Derek Mooney is a political consultant based out of Brussels and ex-special advisor to the Irish government. He's a regular columnist in Broadsheet.ie and in this episode, we spoke about Level 5 lockdown, his early career, the US election, Scottish independence and China's sphere of influence. So sit back and enjoy. That's perfect. Okay, that's good. All right, we're going. All right, we start off. So um, I, I want to talk about your background, your career and all that, because there'd be a lot of politics students listening. To oh, this. no, no, it's a better to set it up from that direction. Yeah, I thought so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but uh, we'll, we'll have to start off with uh, the lockdown, of course. It's day one of the lockdown, facing into a six-week lockdown. Uh, this is a two-part question. Uh, first, what are your general thoughts on it? Uh, how do you feel about it? Is it the right thing to do? And secondly, are you optimistic about it? Okay. Um, broadly speaking, I do think I do think it's the right thing to do. Um, it's a classic Irish question about well, I'd prefer not to be starting from this point. I think we're in the situation because there has been very poor or very patchy enforcement of previous. Uh, levels, particularly level uh, two and, and then to level three. So I think it's regrettable that we're at this point, but we are at this point and we now have to use this. I, I know nobody wants to use the phrase circuit breaker, but I think it has to be a point where we reset um, and actually start to look at proper enforcement. Um, I'm hoping, I am hopeful that this will get us through, but the difficulty is if we reach the 1st of December or 2nd of December, and we're not able to go back to, to level three as an absolute minimum and preferably level two where some kind of attempted normality can, can hit base for the Christmas period. I think you're going to lose a lot of public support. And I think that's going to be very, very problematic. If at the end of level, uh, at the end of level five, and then you've heard Leo Varadkar kind of hinting at this, that, well, there's no guarantee we'll go back to level three. I think at that point, there will be a huge loss of public confidence in the entire process. And that is very, very dangerous. Um, one of the things is, and while we're focusing on this, the point, not the point that we cannot lose sight of, is that 125, 150,000 people were notified on Monday and were given three days notice. That's it, you've got to go, your, your, your job is gone. And that's a huge point. And, then, and you can put a whole range of levels in this. And I'm happy to see the PUP increasing. Indeed, it should never have decreased in the first place. But it needs, you've got Christmas, people are saying, well, look, everything will be reopening for Christmas and people can have a reasonable Christmas. Well, not those people who've just been made unemployed because their income has dropped in the run up to Christmas and they'll be, they'll be running to catch up. So it's, it's, it is a very difficult situation. Um, I, the difficulty with this one is, is that when people are critical of the government, and I'm trying not to be critical of the government, I'm trying not to be politically critical of the government, uh, is because nowhere has got this perfectly right and everyone else is still on a learning curve on this. Now, with every passing day, we learn more about the virus, we learn more about its treatment, the treatments now are much better. Fewer people are ending up in ICUs, fewer people, are, the, the treatments have improved. Um, so we're seeing that, that but they, government is still seems to be just a little bit behind the, the ball on this, which is something it didn't appear to be last uh, March and April. So we see in terms of contact tracing, like the problems over last weekend. Um, my parents lived, moved to Spain in 1999. So I, go, I had to go and visit my mother uh, twice over, uh, since the lockdown um, because I'm the only one who can physically get over there. Uh, otherwise she's by herself. Um, 
And on both occasions, when I arrived in Spain, I felt very confident right from the airport. And I said, when I came back into Dublin Airport, there's nothing wrong. There's lots of cleaning stations. There's lots of uh, social distancing. The airport authorities have run it well, but the people who are missing in the airport at the HSE. When you arrive into a Spanish airport, you've got the local health authorities there. They have an app that you must download in advance. So you do a QR scan so that they can trace you. You arrive into Dublin, you can do your contact tracing online. You can fill in a form, but you just show it to the guy at passport control. You just show him an email receipt and said, yeah, I've got an email. And thereafter, I got two text messages and one phone call, most of which were pro forma. And that doesn't fill me with confidence. Um, so I think we need to seriously move our focus back on the enforcement. And if we can use this six-week period to start rebuilding that capacity, um, I think testing has improved dramatically. Um, so we've gone from maybe doing 60 to 70,000, having the capacity to do 60 to 70,000 tests in, Mar in May, June, July, August, although we were told it was 100,000. Now it's up to 120,000. And, and people, by the way, on the wrap can see every day the number of tests done that week over the preceding seven days. And um, so the testing is improved, but we still need to move to other testing. Like we need the rapid testing, we need the mass testing, the, the antigen testing in schools, etc. And I think schools are now an issue that nobody really wants to talk about. Um, so, I mean, there are, but, but what I'm saying is these six weeks has to be used to address those problems so that on the 1st of December, we can come back with a proper, proper enforcement of level three. Um, or hopefully even level two. Um, I'm I have confidence in Neffet and I have confidence in Tony Holdhead and their modelling. I think they will see this come down to maybe 50 or 60 cases a day. But we'll also see that creep back up. And so what is going to happen in January? Um, and Michael Martin has signaled that you could actually have this rotating lockdown, well, not lockdown, maybe going to level four, going back down to level two, going to level four, going to level two. And just kind of get kind of a kind of a sine wave of uh, measures. There's only so long people can stand this. I mean, I think I think what we, is, I think the level of public buy-in at this point is actually quite remarkable right across Europe, because this is. I mean, um, I mean, th this is something which we in our modern life haven't been through. Um, in terms of this has not had the, the, the damage that you've had with the, the Spanish influenza in 1990, 1918, and I accept that that's a completely different virus. Um, but what we have now is how can our society recover from this? There will be some positives in terms of remote working, working from home, uh, the right to disconnect, etc. in terms of where working conditions. But in terms of our social life, our social interactions, I think that's going to be a problem kind of for that's, that's definitely going to have a medium term problem on that. You mentioned loss of government, loss of confidence in the government. And I believe you had an article a couple of days ago uh, where you 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 want, didn't want people to fall for this false dichotomy of yeah. level three versus level five. Yeah. And method versus yeah. the government. We've seen, I'm sure you would have seen it in the Irish Times as a full page ad for the great Barrington Declaration. Yeah. For the listeners out there who haven't heard about this, it's basically three scientists, one from Oxford, Stanford, and Harvard, and they're calling for vulnerable people to be cocooned and for the young and healthy to just live life as normal. And this is a, it's a very risky strategy because we do not know enough about herd immunity. There is no reason to believe that we will be able to get this herd immunity. It's um, this is a niche belief, yeah. but it's it's what we want to believe. <clears throat> what, what what I'm asking you is, should we be concerned about this growing divide? 
in the coming weeks. Absolutely. Look, they, 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 at the very start of this, and, and it's not just a message we hear here, we've seen the message right across Europe, which is we're, in, we're all in this together. And that's the most powerful message that any government can put out there. But it has to be followed up with the action. And for the most part, that has happened here. I'm not, I'm not saying it hasn't happened. But what is what you've seen in the last couple of weeks was this divide between effort and government. And the problem with science, the science never has never spoken with one voice. There has always been period times when there are different theories and different this and different that. So that's the situation we're in now. But where possible, politically, it should be seen to be speaking with one voice. And I don't mean party politically, I mean in terms of governmentally, maybe is a better way of putting it. And I think the public messaging the delivery of messages between NEFIS and government via the public airways is really dangerous. It really is a very, very scary territory. And I don't think it was, I don't think a lot of this was done through malice, but I think what's happened there is a breakdown of communications and that had, that has to be and had to be fixed very, very quickly. Um, I think it's fine to have a public discussion on it. It's fine for, and I, by the way, I happen to think the Taoiseach was right. I didn't think the government was right two weeks ago, three weeks earlier, not to move to level five at that point. Um, but I, the, the breakdown of communication is difficult. So therefore what happens is, is and I, what I think was a massive mistake over the last couple of months, and certainly the last few weeks, was to allow these anti-mask protests just to march through the streets with impunity. That is just crazy. And they're getting bigger. No, they're not huge. They're not, they're not something that we should be panicking. And I'm not saying the old right is on the, is on the rise and we're going to have the emergence of a Donald Trump or anything like that. Um, but populism is still out there. And populism thrives on these doubts, raising questions. Uh, populism is based on uninformed emotion. And people are becoming emotional on these things, rightly so, because this is a very dangerous situation. But what's happening is that by the government not stepping in, by the scene that these anti-maskers could march through the pro pro could sit down and, and occupy Grafton Street, that was just reckless. And it was irresponsible to let that happen. Now, it's the greater irresponsible, the greater onus is on that as on the people who organized the march. But that was a, it was a, it, I think it was an exceptionally bad signal for the government to let that go ahead. It was an exceptionally bad signal for the Gardaí to let that happen. Um, we cannot have the state's authority challenged in matters like that. So that, that, that was a big mistake. So they're the things you need to watch out for. As for the ad in the Irish Times, first and foremost, I don't blame the Irish Times for running the ad. Um, I read the Great Barrington Declaration. It comes from reputable scientists, but is funded by disreputable sources. Um, and um, actually, when you go into the website, you'll find that I think it's signed by Dr. Herr D. Immunity. It's yeah. signed by um, Dr. Harold Shipman. Um, so you can say, well, hang on a second. There wasn't a great deal of checking on the websites and checking who there. So they claim to have the back of 5,000 uh, medical specialists and scientists. And we wouldn't check them. They're not already there. It is our view. I don't happen to agree with that view, but again, I'm not an expert in this stuff, clearly not. So I don't know, but I think it, it, it's fine for, for a debate to take place within science on the governmental level in terms of when they're deciding public policy and big issues of public policy, particularly on public health, then I don't think you do have the space for what we've had over the last month or so. And you can't, that has to have a hard reset. Um, NEFID's role is to advise. It is also there to oversee the delivery in terms of its, its, its expert role within the Department of Health. And it is, it is a unit within the Department of Health. Um, and at the end of the day, it's ministers who must, must decide, and they must decide on the basis of all the information presented to them, of which NEFID's analysis is a large part, but it is not the totality of it. 
Um, but that's, I'm not querying the perceptor. As I say, again, we're not going to go back to the previous question. I'm not questioning about going down to life, level five. I think given the numbers, it is probably advisable to do so now. But when we come out of this in December 1st, we cannot go back to the way things were in September, October. They, they just, just, that is not a, a sustainable position. Why was it not the right idea to go into this lockdown two or three weeks ago? Number one is because the manner in which it was delivered. I, I, I disagree considerably with how what the, the Tanisha did on the Clare Byrne show. And basically his answers back to, to Tony Holland, they shouldn't have been delivered through Clare Byrne. I'm sure they were delivered separately before that, but I just didn't think it was good signalling. But some of the points he made were quite valid, which is you could not move to level five a kind of 24 hour, 48 hours notice, given the cost of it, given the number of people you are now going to make for London, given the amount of money you're going to have to spend in BAB. So if you're going to move to level five, there needed to be some planning, there needed to be some advanced warning of it, there needed to be some, some build-up of it. Number two, if we had moved to level five then, we would probably would have gone into it for four weeks. We'd now be at the midpoint of it. We'd be at the midpoint now. So therefore, at this point, and by the way, as I think people need to be clear, there's, a t there's about a 10 to 14 day lag between putting the measures in place and then starting to see the results in the statistics. Um, in Unfortunately, we still go a lot about our number of infection rates rather than looking at hospitalization rates, et cetera, but that's so be it. Um, so we would have been at the midpoint of that now, two weeks on, we would have been seeing uh, a decrease in hospitalizations. But we then would have been expecting these measures to be lifted in mid-November. And then if you look at then kind of another shake, we, we could well have been coming back up in Christmas week or the week before that to another peak. So if you look at that, I think in terms of the timing, I think for a whole range of reasons, it was, it was right not to go to that. They still hadn't given, they were, because in many cases, they would have been talking moving from level two directly to level five and without a clarity of messaging. Um, so I, I, I personally think that Taoiseach took the right decision then. Um, I think level three probably been should have given a bit, bit longer, but I think uh, there's a very good graphic that's been produced by Kevin Cunningham which looks at the infection rates and it's under kind of an animation, an animated graphic looking over time. And you see that there's a certain critical point where the infections just kind of explode, where you can kind of manage 100, 200 cases per day. But once you start to get into five, six, 700 cases per day, suddenly now you're jumping to a thousand. That was increasing geometrically. And that's, we, we, had, we, had, we had hit that point. Um, I mean, Dublin is not a bad example in terms of his level, level three was starting to work, particularly in certain areas, not, not everywhere. So if you looked at the LEAs around Dublin, but half of them were recording significant drops like Ballyfermas, Drimna, um, uh, Finglas, uh, uh, Ballymon, et cetera. You had a whole range of there that were seeing fairly dramatic cuts in the infection rate, but it wasn't happening across the board. And again, it comes down to enforcement. Again, it comes back to, I think that has been the problem since the summer. There has been a problem with enforcement. There is a, there is definitely a lag with contact tracing. Um, the app has not been used enough. Um, and I think the government has also been lax on public information. I think we should be seeing an advert in every single uh, television ad, or every television ad break for either masks, the contact tracing app, social distancing, wash your hands, and, keep, and avoiding as much indoor contact with, 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 with the people outside your bubble. And I think that should be the constant message. Look, you look around the streets, a lot of people are wearing masks, but they're wearing masks like they're chin straps. I mean, it, it, it's, it, 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 it's, it's everywhere bar over the mouth and nose. And people genuinely think they're doing the right thing. But I think there needs to be a great deal more information on that. Um, and I think for some reason there has been, seemed to be in Ireland, a kind of a, a scepticism from, um, from some in Neffers and others about mask wearing. 
though when you go to most other places, if you look at the States, Dr. Fauci is constantly on about mask wearing. But not only that, you look at Germany, you look at right other places where it's at a lower rate. And there's, mask there's also another factor which comes up with that I mentioned, I was in Spain um, over the last couple of weeks. And I self-isolated for my entire 14 days when I came back and, and nobody can find me stepping outside the door. Um, the, if you look in Spain, Spain is actually quite regional. So where, where my mother lives in Valencia, the rate is comparable to Ireland, maybe even slightly below it. But you then go to Madrid or you go to Catalonia, where it's just off the Richter scale. So they're also recognizing that there are regional differences in this. Ireland's probably a bit too small to kind of go for that. Um, while the Kildare and Carlo lockdowns worked, there weren't problems around it. And like even the current rules, I mean, I can't move more than five kilometers from my house. Fair enough. But I can't cross the county boundary. Problem is, the nearest bank to me is two and a half kilometers away, but I have to cross the county boundary to get to it. The nearest bank to me within my county is five and a half kilometers away, so I can't get to the bank. That's the bank's problem, it's not my problem. <laughs> They're going to have to do without the lodgement. But there's small little things around that. Uh, we, that, that, that we have to recognize that, that people are being tempted at times to break the rules because maybe they're not fully buying and understanding and, and therefore the communications. Um, not kind of kind of preempting the next broad GPs I'm writing, but one of the things I was, I was genuinely impressed for the first time in a while by Michal Martin's speech on Monday. I think his address was genuinely good. And I mean that in terms of it had a beginning, a middle, an end. It had a story to tell. And that is something we hadn't seen before. So I think his messaging seems to have improved. He seems to have kind of focused himself a lot more at a time when the tarnish just seems to be losing his focus. Um, and I think that's an interesting dynamic as well. What are your thoughts on the government performance so far? So where would you stand on it? <laughs> um, well, again, coming back to which is, I don't think it's any big thing that I was opposed to the government. I opposed the program for government, and this was the reason I eventually resigned from Fianna Fáil, which is after nearly after over forty years a member, um, and I did so partly pyrrhically, which is, look, I, I just can't agree with this. I had, I had a couple of problems with it. I think the government is performing reasonably well. Um, I think it's patchy. I think it's internal cohesion, however, is something that I would worry about, in terms of it is. I totally understand from the media's point of view. I totally understand for the view of pundits. Having a running commentary and a cabinet meeting is brilliant, but it doesn't. It does nothing for governance. So the actual, so the I think the leaking within government, the leaking by ministers against each other and against their colleagues and against the other party and against the other side is, it's poisonous, and it's bad, and it just it has to stop. The similarly within the Fianna Fáil parliamentary party. You cannot have a situation where the examiner can basically give you a blow-by-blow -blow account of who's saying what during the parliamentary party. This has to be stamped out. So the people who are doing it have to stop. Problem is the people who should be making them stop are not quite powerful enough to do it. And that's a that makes me worry about the government. Um, I oppose this government because I believe, number one, it didn't take account of what happened at the last election. There are very few people who are more passionately critical of Sinn Féin than I am. But I, I'm, and I'm not advocating for Sinn Féin to be in government. But I don't think either Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael have taken the lesson of the last election. And I think the polls are leading us into a slightly mysterious area at the moment because people are, people are not thinking about it in terms of how they're going to vote for the next election. They're thinking about how this government is doing on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. And when, you, and when you aggregate Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael and the Greens, that's mostly above 55%. Um, but I think for the, from the view of the parties, I think there is still a disconnect within this government. 
Um, I think there's a, I think there was a, a, an underappreciation of just how long and how long the tail of COVID is going to be, because uh, while people are saying, okay, look, there'll be a vaccine February, March, April. In terms of mass vaccination, in terms of actually getting to the point where, where COVID shouldn't be, shouldn't, shouldn't bother us any more than their, their, their seasonal flu. Um, I think we're still a long way off that. And I think therefore COVID is going to dominate every conversation, every debate. And that, I don't see that dominating the programme for government. I think the programme government had lots of very fine aspirations, stuff that I broadly would support. Some of them, not all of it, obviously. But I don't think that's realistic in the current environment. I think you've got to recognise that COVID dominates the agenda right through all of 2021 and well into 2022. I was going through your LinkedIn before this, and yeah. there was, yeah, and you, you did your leaving cert, and then there's a 14-year gap, and then you went to Trinity. <laughs> there is, and then, there, then you went to Trinity. Well, no, 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 there isn't, there isn't, which is number one, nobody's interested in what you did 30, 35 years ago. I work in HR or something. It's, it's, um, this kind of, I mean, I remember the kind of thing way, way back. Basically, what I did is, from the time I went to, when went to Trinity, when left, uh, did, went to Sixth Street, did my leaving cert in 79, Went to college for two years and didn't like it and gave it up. And got out of it, went into the family business. So I was a hotel manager and ran hotels, uh, et cetera, for about 10 years. So that, that's kind of that gap. None of that is relevant to what I do today. So therefore, I don't bother putting it in any great detail. There's nothing, there's nothing, <laughs> there's no great story there. It's extremely, extremely boring. Um, in terms of then, I went back to Trinity to do a BSS because. Again, which is I, 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 when I went to when I went to UCC the first time, and actually when I went to UCC, I was in college in UCC in 1981. So I was in UCC at the same time as Hall Martin, and at the same time as Philip Bill Hogan. Um, so kind of knew both of them in college. Um, uh, but I just I, because I went to UCC, it just made it made things very very difficult and kind of financially kind of just we kind of it stretched it always stretched the family. Um, the but having said that, that kind of 10 to 12 years, just out doing normal things and just running, kind of getting into the hotel. My family had been in the hotel business, um, though the, 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 the business had gone kind of uh, belly up in around 83, 84. Um, it kind of got you into the real world. So I actually have a kind of a practical background. I've actually worked in business. I ran hotels. I was a hotel general manager. Um, there is something in there in the middle of it, which is 1985. I ran for the first time I ran for election. Um, where the good people of Crumlin and Cambridge told me to take a run and jump on myself, and God knows they were right. Um, so, then, so that that's that gap is. Thereafter, kind of most of the stuff in terms of what I put in LinkedIn is more political, and that's what kind of what you see on then from from about ninety one, ninety two onwards. Okay, okay. Why is it? You say it was a BSS you studied in Trinity? BSS, yeah, yeah. Business Why and Social Studies. Why'd you pick that? Um. It, uh, there's a good, actually, do you know what? I can't remember. Um, <laughs> um, I think when, when I just didn't want to do a BA, I didn't want to do a two-subject BA. That's eventually what I ended up effectively doing because yeah, we did it in HR and in politics. Um, I just wanted to go back to college more so than anything else, and therefore BSS seemed to give you the greatest variety of kind of first year. You can do start with six subjects, you can five, four, whatever. Um, so I just kind of liked the this, this style of that. Um, also, a lot of times, why did anyone do anything? Because kind of sometimes other people are doing it. Um, the year I went back to, to Trinity and went back to Trinity as a mature student, there were a lot of people going to Trinity at the same time as mature students. So there was actually quite a bunch of mature students at the time in BSS. And, and that's it. So in terms of what I do today in business, um, I got to know them through uh, at that point. So there's a lot of that stuff that, that, that comes into it. Um, 
one thing is that which I should never admit that I such as I always struggled with economics in university. Don't know why. My politics was no problem at all. Sociology, much to my surprise, I found that I myself to be quite good at. But the economics I always struggled with. So the fact that I went for the E in the BSS is always a surprise to me. You you know, I, I know a lot of people that still do that course, BSS, and they say the same thing that economics is that hard to wrap your head around. And um, it says in your LinkedIn you did human resource management and politics. Was yeah. that like did you specialize in BSS yeah. or yeah? Or you specialize in human, why human resource management politics? You just enjoyed it? Well, yeah, politics because I thought it was the thing that came easiest to me, and it was the thing that has, that has still been the most important element in my in my kind of my 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 career. Um, the HRM was having worked in hotels. One that one of the biggest functions as a hotel general manager is basically recruitment, training, stuff. So it may be any business that's a people business. The hospitality sector is essentially a people business. So therefore, the people you recruit, the people you train. So suddenly, I decided I had a kind of a flair for HRM, and that's why I decided that was basically wasn't my original intention when I went there to do that. But that's why I found myself kind of meandering into. So since then, like I mean, in terms of what I do today. Um, I work with an organization called BERG, which is the Brussels European Employee Relations Group. It's a network of European HR directors. I run the network end of it. I have colleagues who do the consultancy end, but we specialize in European works councils, et cetera. Um, so therefore, I just found, a lot of times you just kind of meander these things. And I just found that I, that was the area that which I, I had the greatest affinity. I enjoyed industrial relations. I enjoyed labor relations. I enjoyed the HRM. And therefore, I end up doing a lot of, I still do a lot of stuff around, in around that. Not too much on the practical side, like in terms of, I haven't worked as a personnel director in a company, et cetera. But we've been, like for a long time, what, what is now Berg started out as another organization called EIRI, which is Employment Industrial Relations Intelligence. And it looked at developments, particularly around the European end. So the Organization of Working Time Directive, the European Work, the Information Consultation Employees Directive, which is the um, European Works Councils. So that kind of that. So they kind of just got into that. Um, and it's one of those things where I would recommend BSS to be because, I mean, it gives you a flavor of things and you can start to, to see what you... Sorry, I, I'm a little bit unfair in this. That works for me as a mature student. When at 30 years of age, I already had experience. I had 10 years. I, had, I was able to pay my way through college myself. I was able to fund it. I was able to work part-time. I managed to, to, to change position. and went to a job where I was just working, where I was basically doing relief management in a hotel in Dublin for three or four days a week. And that, led, that allowed me to go to college. It also allowed me to maintain a reasonable lifestyle in college. So I mean, I was very popular amongst the younger students because I was the only one with bloody cash on me. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. I, I'm a big fan of the mature students as well because he asked all the questions yeah. that were too afraid to ask. Oh, no, it is. Oh. And, by the way, I, and we, we had a huge number of when BSS within that, uh, sorry, within, within mature students, and a lot of them were happened, just happened to be in BSS, and these are people I'll be still very friendly with to this day, and we set up the Mature Student Society in Trinity. We also, um, myself and the guy I'm busy with now, Tom Hayes, Tom Hayes and myself, and his wife was, in, was, in the, was on the course with me. Um, myself, uh, myself and Tom, basically, we ran a mature student for president of Trinity Students Union, and we got him elected. And we kind of did just to prove that we could. Um, that's because uh, I, yeah, I know that that society is still around. You were the yeah. one that set that up. No, no, we, 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 I, I, I can't remember who exactly set it up, um, but it certainly started that year. Okay, interesting, interesting. And after you did that, 
Was it you set up your own independent as a communications consultancy firm? Basically, yeah. What, what emerged from that is when, when kind of as I was finishing up there myself and uh, uh, as a, the person I mentioned, Tom Hayes, we said we kind of started doing a little bit of business together. And um, we started, we kind of saw there was a gap in the market, particularly with all these European directors coming through, on, as I said, the organization working time, European work councils. And we said, look, we could actually put together a conference on this and just looking at the employment relation, because a lot of focus had been on what Europe had, what Europe had done in terms of pay equality, et cetera, in way, way back. But it was kind of now looking at uh, the collective bargaining side as well. So we started kind of, we did it, we decided we would both throw in a couple of quid and see could we organize an employment law conference and see what would take up there was. So I was able to use my hotel background to organize the conference to do the logistics around it. And, and so we had kind of put together this conference and much to our surprise, we got 90 attendees. Now we were bargaining. I think breakthrough for us would have been 40 to 45. And suddenly that was like, wow. I suddenly realized there's a business here. And so it grew out of that. Tom himself was a lecturer in the, N in the NCIO, the old National College of Industrial Relations in Randla. So Tom had a Tom, Tom had come from a very strong HR background, uh, having worked originally with the old FWUI, the Federation Workers Union of Ireland. Um, so we kind of just, and this again, the business kind of grew out of this only. It was just we would do joint ventures. Suddenly, I found that that having organised that conference and doing a bit of publicity around and a bit of, com uh, bit of communications around it, that I found okay, there's, there's there's a nice little business here. So then I went around and started going around to what I thought would see a small representative organisations who didn't have enough either capital resources or were not sufficiently uh, uh, well structured to sustain to either go to one of the big communications agencies, but neither could they employ somebody in-house. So I offered a kind of a bijou service. So I did. So then I had a couple of representative organizations that I looked after and you would basically kind of do, they would pay me a retainer and I would do a kind of a monthly assessment for what was coming up, would help them with their pre-budget submissions, with those legislation coming through, putting stuff together. So now we was doing more of the public affairs side of that. And that was a very nice business model that ran from about 92 to 2004. And um, it was in 2004. What happened in 2004? Because you ended 2004, up working I for... In 2004, I was about asked to, I became a special advisor. So I went into government in October. You were for, for Willie O'D. Yeah. I'd been, yeah, kind of like trying to just kind of go, kind of wind back a wee bit in terms of the political involvement. Um, I'd been politically involved. Like I said, I ran in 1985 for the local elections. Um, then I ran again in 91. And that was even a bigger hammering than, 90, than 85. Um, but in the meantime, then I kind of went in, kind of into the organizational side. So I was kind of in the director, I was constituency director of elections. I ran Ben Briscoe's election campaigns in 92 and 97. And Ben had just then after 97, had decided he wasn't seeking re-election. He'd been in the doll at that stage for 37 years. And suddenly I was kind of, he was saying to me, he kind of was unbeknownst to me, he was saying to some of his colleagues, listen, if you're looking for a guy to run your stuff and to do your back out, back out and stuff, the rest of it. Very bad. He's good at speech writing. He's good at uh, the organizational side of the rest of it. And he knows how to run an election campaign. So, uh, like, for example, in 1997, I managed to get Ben on the nine o'clock news, at the six o'clock and the nine o'clock news on the night the election was called. That's not a bad little thing to do at the middle of the election, which is a backbench TD getting into the news um, news cycle. So, we kind of, and we seem to have a kind of a bit of a knack for that. So, in around 2000, 2001, Willie O'D asked me, will I? Um, get involved in his election campaign. So I became his director of elections in 2002. 
and in 2004, although he was a junior minister, I didn't, a junior minister, strictly speaking, didn't have special advisors at the time. They had kind of parliamentary researchers. My business was going too well for me to stand down and take a role like that. So then in 2004, when he was promoted to cabinet, um, he advised me to become a special advisor. And I, 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 I didn't say no the first time. Actually, I took a couple of weeks to think about it because the, because the business, my business model was now starting to work. Um, so, but I decided then, I by the way, in hindsight, it was the right, it was the right decision to make. And what was that like? You, 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 all you'd have worked all your life before, more or less in the private sector. And yeah. then you're suddenly a special advisor to the government. What was that like? Um, well, first thing, I've been around politics long enough and I've been in and out of Leinster House for the preceding 10 to 15 years. So a lot of that end of it didn't come as a shock to me. Um, and the civil service culture is not a bad culture. I mean, it's, it's a different, it's a very different one, but it's not a bad culture. Um, probably got an easy birth from it because Willie was Minister for Defence. So defence wasn't exactly a huge policy area year to year, although though we were actually, you'd had the, the 2000 white paper. So you now had a kind of, a, there was a reforming process going on within the department. The department itself is probably an example of how public sector reform can really work because the department itself has downsized, the army had downsized, but the savings had gone back into recruitment, so gone into training and development and uh, weapons improvement and uh, structure improvements and even just sorting out the barracks, etc. So it was a good time to be there, but it wasn't so demanding. So therefore you weren't on a huge learning curve because the thing about being a special advisor is you start straight away. You don't have a kind of a, you have maybe, I think now they do an induction course, but that's one day. So like you're suddenly you're going from, you're sitting around doing whatever you're doing in the private sector or whatever it is, you go into the, suddenly the next day is right, the minister's speaking on such and such, you've got to clear the speech. There's the PQs that are going through tomorrow. I think Willie took over in a day, I can't remember what day he took over, but he was basically answering, <laughs> I think he was answering a debate the following afternoon. Like he'd only just take it in and suddenly it's kind of, you'd answer the debate, there's your file, there's your briefing material, know it. And by the way, you're on your own. <laughs> so it's, it is that kind of, it's a, it's a very, very steep. Now in defence, it is a little bit easier, but so I mean, in terms of you're going into a government department, it is, it is, it is high heavy. So a lot of that is just kind of just looking after the PQs. In Willie's case, because he was seen to be a kind of a, an all-purpose spokesperson. So Willie was the guy who wheeled out when, um, when you wanted to, to go to war, not literally, but politically. Um, so therefore you were kind of doing across a much wider brief. In the run-up to the 2007 election, I think Michael McDougall was Minister for Justice. So Fianna Fáil, strictly speaking, didn't have a justice spokesperson. So from about 2005, 2006 onwards, Willie de facto became Fianna Fáil's justice spokesperson because he was going to have to carry the justice brief during the election. So therefore we were now kind of broadening out. So we were, so kind of the, the 2007 manifesto, I would have chaired the justice uh, section of it. Um, so, that, so, that was, so therefore you were kind of getting the kind of the slight ease of being in a quieter department, uh, but then you were getting the, the added bonus of having kind of a broader political remit, which Willie had. And therefore, therefore you got the best of all worlds. Plus the fact he was actually surprisingly easy to work with. Willie? Really? Yeah. Strange enough, it is. Not, not only because I think it, well, he knew from 2002 that I knew what I was doing and as, as director of elections that I, I always had his back. And I think it is kind of it's an interesting area of so the relationship between special advisor and the minister. It has, to be, it has to be a relationship built entirely on trust because there is a point where as a special advisor, you, knew, you need to go in and tell the minister something he doesn't want to hear. And you have to have the ability to do that. Now, you can only go to the well so often on that. But Ms. Evan Willie had a good, relate, good working relationship weren't always at item, weren't always in total agreement and everything, but I also realise I'm the special advisor. I am there to advise. If he takes my advice, it doesn't take him advice. That's his business. 
um, all I can do is advise in many cases. And it, it, again, the relationship differs from minister to minister, depending on what, what, what gaps they want you to fill, where they want you to step in. But in terms of what I found was the ability to reach out to organisations, to reach out to organisations that maybe the Department of Defence didn't always listen to. The Department of Defence is very much a closed operation, understandably so, it is responsible for the security of the nation, but it has a very much a kind of a, a non-public facing um, setup. Now, that was starting to change because the reform process, um, you had new, uh, younger civil servants coming to senior positions, that was changing it. Also, you had a very, very um, part of the way through there, we got a new chief of staff in the Defence Forces, Dermot uh, uh, Early. And like Dermot was just an extraordinary man. And he, and he was taken way too soon and way too young. Um, but as chief of staff of the Defence Forces, he was a brilliant man. He was a superb communicator. Um, but at that time, like, for example, we had an operation in Liberia. We were in the Lebanon. We had about 850 troops overseas at any given day. Um, serving overseas on UN, UN-led missions. And then we had the Chad mission, which we became part of, which was a European-led mission, um, uh, headquartered by France, and then where Ireland got the, uh, the position of, of, of the head of operations. So there, there was there was stuff, there was a lot of things happening there at the same time. Um, but the reform process was good. I mean, in terms of people talk about public sector reform, the Department of Defence is the one that proved that public sector reform, when done properly, can work. But you then have to maintain that. That's, I think, what's gone seriously wrong in the Department of Defence and the Defence Forces since then, because they're seeing that they had made the sacrifices, were starting to reap the benefits of it, and then suddenly, okay, it was board snip with the, 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 the crash in 2008. We had made cuts, but those cuts were never reinstated. They were, they were, they were, the, the promise to kind of to fix, put that back never happened. So there's, I think that's why they've got such a low morale level and why things are not that great in the Defence Forces at the moment. Um, so there hasn't been the, and not helped by the fact by not having a full-time Minister of Defence, by it being an adjunct to some other department, is not helped. So you think it's the, the funds that were cut in, in the 2008, that's why we have the recruitment crisis we have now with the Defence Forces? Well, is, yeah, what you had is, you've, you've, you, the thing was, even during the, the Celtic Tiger, even during the height of it, being in the Defence Forces was a job. I mean, in terms of, I remember doing the numbers one time, which is for every uh, vacancy we had in the cadets, those 25 applicants, for every vacancy we had in general service recruitment, which is just joining as an ordinary uh, uh, three-star private, or uh, one-star private, there was five, so it was six to seven applicants. And these are high quality applicants. So I mean, the, the Department of the, the, the Defence Forces was never the job we went to when you couldn't get anything else. So there's never been that. There's always been a demand. Um, and it wasn't always huge pain. What had happened was that we allowed a development of a model where your basic pay was low, but you made it up in allowances. So you did border service allowance, you did um, the cash escort allowances. There was a whole range of other allowances that topped up your salary. They started to disappear. Now, the border allowance we got rid of because they needed to be, well, there was, what was the point in having a border allowance kind of 10 years after, 11, 12 years after the Good Friday Agreement when the border wasn't the issue it had been then? But and and so therefore we had started to build it into pay that that kind of stopped and stopped abruptly in 2008 2009 naturally enough because of the the um the crash the global crash but that hasn't been repaired since then the when when michael smith was minister of defense i think there, were, there, were, there had been 13 and a half thousand in the defense forces in the in the 80s and 90s that had come down to 12 and a half thousand under the white paper of 2000, it brought the number down to 10,500, and that was the establishment strength. 
in Bordsnip Nua, they had recommended to bring it down on a temporary basis for to get through that measure to nine and a half thousand. At the moment, in, in real terms, this is just under nine thousand. That number should have always gone back up to ten and a half thousand. It should have been back up to ten to ten and a half thousand a couple of, a few years ago, when the last white paper was produced in twenty fifteen. That should have been, it, it didn't. What you have is now is is is, is a is a um. It, 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 it's a model that isn't going to work. And, and I think you do, I think the, the 2015 was a wasted opportunity in the white paper. It's not a bad document, but it was never based on, it was based on justifying what was happening rather than kind of trying to get back to where we should be. I firmly believe that cybersecurity should be in the purview of the defense forces. I firmly believe that cybersecurity, national cybersecurity should be invested into the Department of Defense. And I think we're sadly lacking. We are the fifth or sixth highest target for cyber attacks in Europe. Um, we have 50 to 60%, uh, maybe sorry, 40 to 50% of all of Europe, Europe's personal data is stored in Ireland. We are seriously a target for this. And while the major corporations, the major um, IT firms, et cetera, are now protecting their own cyber, it's the gaps in between. It's the national infrastructure that is quite vulnerable. And I believe cybersecurity, there was a time when the Defence Forces had a decent cybersecurity capacity when it was at the cutting edge of a lot of the stuff. No, for its own interest only, by the way, it was its own protection of its own resources, of its own assets. They eventually have now gone. Most people who worked in the Defence Forces and the cybersecurity side are now in the private sector because number one, they were the best going. And number two, the pay rates were far better than they could get outside. And we, now to, we need to replace that. We need to reinforce that. And we need to develop a proper national cybersecurity strategy. And that's invested in the department. That's that's based in the department. It should be a civil military unit. It shouldn't just be military only. Um, but I think that we should be doing. And we Ireland should be at the cutting edge of cybersecurity. Um, and I think in ways that we have cut the wave on this in the past, I think we should be doing some, something similar to it now as well, which is looking at so that in many ways uh, that, 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 that defence forces should be looking to recruit people, train them as cybersecurity experts and recognise that they will go into the private sector, but get that couple of years after uh, work out of them first. So they come through and I think you could build, you could quite quickly develop a decent cybersecurity capacity that way. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good point. I, I, I've spoke to people who said the exact same thing. Yeah. Can you speak to the defamation case Willie O'D in was it 2009 that led to his resignation 2010 yeah. and just what mistakes were made just as much as you can um okay that was <laughs> it's painful and it's not easy and recognize it was a defamation case so the last thing I want to do is I'm going to do any people either um, I'm not going to go back into what the, the, the origins of the case are. People can Google that and the rest, but it was, it was based on an interview that Willie gave, which he believed off the record, where he made a reference to somebody else, where he said something that somebody else that was untrue. It was a political rival. Um, the origins of that were kind of just, was it was a sloped, gradual building of tit for tat. Now, what happened was, is that um, Willie Dilly didn't recall saying it, when he was correct, when he was shown that he had said it and that he had said it, although albeit off the record, and he had said it to journalists in the manner he had said it, he apologized and it was withdrawn. So the, the kind of defamation case was he actually threw up his hands. Now, there was a period of three to four months, which was uh, because we based on what, what appeared in the paper and what, the, what appeared in the paper was proved not to be def, def, defamatory, but what had appeared on the tape, which was never published, was. Um, so therefore, so the, so the defamation was based on that. And so with that, that, that was it. In terms of, you look at, there was a whole series of political things that happened at the same time. It was at the start of the breakdown in relationships between the Green Party and uh, Fianna Fáil. Um, 
the debate on it that took place in the Dáil, Eamon Ryan came in and spoke in favour of William G. And basically said, look, he put his hands up. He did, did, yeah, there was a bit we didn't, but he put his hands up and he admitted he had got it wrong. Um, that debate, I remember watching it and I can't think I counted that Willie was, was, was interrupted. And I don't just mean small interruptions. I've been heckled throughout the entire debate for his 20 minutes. He was the If you look, look at the Dáil report, interruptions comes up every 15 seconds so like this wasn't a debate um and kenny had just gone through a very very bad patch and was needed seen to get ahead and um, the vote took place the most emotion of no confidence of willie failed it fell then a tweet went out saying there's more to come there's a bigger story willie's told lies again in the doll blah, blah blah that story went round, and that spooked the green party the following morning they basically said that they they had changed their mind it was supposed to be that there was a story in the Limerick Leader that was going to prove that something else had happened. And I, and I genuinely cannot for the, from the moment to remember what this big thing was. We, I produced a copy of the Limerick Leader to the guys in the Green Party the following morning. He said, look, there's nothing there. It actually, it actually totally uh, follows Willie's version of the journalist said, no, no, this is what happened. This is what happened. I asked him a question. He made the comment, which we published. And I asked him, look, I don't understand what you're talking about. He then made another comment, which was the one that turned out to be defamation, which was not the one that the Limerick leader published. It was not the one that the Greens used. And um, it went on. So I said, look, there's nothing in this. There's nothing in the story. But at this stage, the whole thing gone ahead. The reason why Willie resigned was there was now due to be a vote the following week in the Shannon of motion no confidence. Now, the Shannon, strictly speaking, can't vote no confidence in the minister. But because there were two or three vacancies in the Senate, um, I think I can't remember that one or two senators had died and they hadn't been filled. Therefore, the government were going to lose the debate, was going to lose the vote in the Senate the next week. And we had to decide, look, do we want another week of this where we're definitely going to lose the vote and it's now going to continue again and there's going to be a resurgence. And the Greens are now are now are now kind of under huge pressure. And so we had one Willie went on the news at one o'clock there on the think on the Thursday, and that was in February. Um, 2010 to do a kind of a mea culpa with Sean O'Rourke and it just it was one of those interviews it just it just it just rolled out it didn't roll out of control um, Willie came across looking vulnerable and looking weak and sustained um, I think under any I think under other circumstances if it wasn't that particular time if it wasn't that particular pressures if there wasn't that much pressure on the Green Party if there weren't that many difficulties within the government if there weren't it would have been able to sustain it but the fact the following week you had uh, Fine Gael putting down a motion of confidence in the Senate, the Greens saying that they were that they were not going to that they were not going to vote for confidence in Willie because they were coming under pressure. They were probably going to abstain that they might vote against him. But either way, the government because the, the the government didn't have a majority in the Senate at the time, we were going to lose the vote. It was just going to extend it. So there was a conversation between Willie and Brian Cowan that afternoon. And Willie came to the conclusion, look, this is this is this is this is not so much a distraction, this is just so much pressure. Um, and this is going to roll on. And he decided then to tender his resignation that evening. Um the thing about it is, which is the the interview had been the previous July, and Willie resigned in June, in February. And like the again, it's just, this is politics, which is it's, and I think a lot of the, I think a lot of the, the the history of the story is kind of lost in it, etc. And if people forget that the, that the actual trigger at the last minute for this was after a motion of confidence, which really won. They did this, um, um, what you call it, that this tweet comes out, 
which was complete fiction, but it spooked everyone. And it is the first instance um, of a tweet, um, not the first instance, it was the first major instance in Ireland of a tweet having a major political ramification. Um, but so be it, that's, that's where we are. So like it was, they, on the day it said, they did self, I mean, in terms of it was, it was the most, I, I kind of recall that day vividly, um, kind of going in in the morning, meeting with the Greens, but not this from about six or seven o'clock in the morning, the Green Parliamentary Party meeting was meeting and they were saying they weren't happy. The night before, Eamon Ryan had come down and spoken very vocally on Willie's behalf, had criticised what he'd done and like criticised Will for, for something that Willie really shouldn't be criticised for. Um, but again, it just sort of rolled on. Um, so there was a, it was an interesting day and then I'm running backwards and forwards and trying to pour oil over troubled waters. But you just, you, there's a point you realise with this is, it's momentum in politics is huge, is a huge factor and the momentum was going the wrong way and you just, you just had to face this. So that by about half, by about three o'clock, we knew, I knew it was over. And it was now part of my point of managing the the exit. And it, it, it's it's brutal enough because I basically the department rang me that evening and said, right, well, look, you're off the payroll. Um, how long is it going to take you to clear out your task? And basically, can you be done by early next week? Um, and everything, but your everything's there then. So luckily, one of the things we decided we were that none of that, I think there was a ministerial credit card, but really never hand handled it. Um, and I never had anything. So like, there was a question about my phone. My phone physically was mine, but the bill, they were paying my bill. So I had to go and kind of get on and get the bill changed and stuff like that. Because <laughs> otherwise your phones would be cut off. Um, so that was, and that's just the way it is. It's, 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 it's a tough business. Um, yeah, anyway. so I had back, back your security card and all the rest of it and get out. Yeah, time, time. Uh, what would you say to people listening to this, they'll be considering joining the Defence Forces. I think, is it a good place to go right now? You're saying low morale, Absolutely. low pay. I think, I would still say to them to do it because I think I think there there is, I, I, it's not that I detect a massive change now, but I think just, I think there is a realisation that the, the current situation is not sustainable. Oh, sorry, the previous situation. There are improvements. There have been pay increases. Um, there are things are starting to get to pull together. I think it's about three or four years behind where it should be, but that's that, that doesn't that's not the point. Um, absolutely would advocate it. Number one, um, we're now back to doing um, a reasonable number of rotations. Basically, anybody who joins the defence forces, you're expected to do one six month tour of duty overseas every three years. Um, and for that, you get uh, there is a UN uh, allowance, um, which which helps top up people's salary. And by the way, I wouldn't underestimate the degree to which that was a factor over previous years. Which is, we had gone from having, as I said, eight hundred and fifty at any given time overseas. That meant about just seventeen hundred or whatever serving overseas in the defence forces of at the time ten and a half thousand. So that means a fairly good rotation. That meant you were going to get a, a go with this and manage to have a major top up to your salary, because uh, this is allowance on top of your basic pay. Um, and it's a fairly generous, I'm not saying generous, but it's a fairly decent allowance um, thereafter. So what you had is you had, um, so, so that's, no, the numbers are back up again. I think there's five, 600, there's 600 or something overseas that had gone down to 350 a couple of years ago, three, 300, 400. So you're going to do a tour of overseas. You're going to get a huge training opportunities. One of the things that is not properly reflected is the degree to which the defense forces are a brilliant training organization. 
they have invested heavily in training and upskilling. And you take it right around a range of a huge, sorry, right across a huge range of very um, viable skills and very kind of very, very um, uh, needed skills in, in the end of the wider economy uh, that you're going to get a training in that and you're going to get trained to the highest standards. And um, one of the things that people forget about is that Ireland is the headquarters of the United Nations Training School on um, peacekeeping operations on, um, uh, um, sorry, there's a, on the kind of, uh, we get the phrase that goes my head now for the rest of it, which is in terms of the, not just the, the operation, peacekeeping operations, but in terms of the parish esteem, about equality, about recognizing kind of uh, the, the human rights element of it. And that and that, that that the United Nations Training School is based in the Curra. Um, they that there is a whole range of things there. It is a very disciplined uh, lifestyle. It is a very very well run and very highly professionally managed organisation. So I would say to people, yeah, if you have any interest, I'd absolutely advocate for it. Um, and you're going to be, in terms of not only in terms of people look at the peacekeeping operations and where we have. I can't remember, 250, 311, and you've got 150 on the, 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 the UNSEE mission in the, the Golden Heights. Um, and if you look, then, then would there be another, maybe about another 20 or 30 missions where you've got 8, 10, 15 people, including having people in Brussels, including having people at the, in the United Nations peacekeeping operations in New York. So there's actually a whole range of skills. We have people at, at the table in a whole range of missions. So in terms of intelligence gathering, et cetera, there's a, there's a huge presence, a huge footprint there. So whatever your skill says, whatever your particular skills interest, I think there's great opportunities within that. Could you get it to the intelligence services? Because it was my understanding that Ireland, it was the intelligence was through the Gardaí. The Gardaí, but there is an intelligence unit within the defence. What I mean by that is, so if you're in any operation, there will be an intelligence operation across. So therefore, in the mission in Lebanon, there will be an intelligence gathering operation and that. So therefore, you will be plugged into these networks. It's not necessarily that you're part of an intelligence network, but that you're actually sitting in part of somebody else's one. And it's, it's, it's in that it's, in, it's on that side of it. But there is, I mean, they, for a long time, they, 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 the, the two people who who can sign uh, warrants for uh, tele, tele, telephonic uh, interception are the Minister of Defence and the Minister of Justice. Um, so I mean, there is an intelligence gathering. Just which kind of it looks at where the Gardaí are primarily ones within the state. Those would look at people outside the state would be the, the defence forces. It's not a huge operation. I'm not. That they, and by the way, there is an argument for there being a totally standalone, separate national intelligence operation, which would have both Garda and uh, military uh, military involvement. I think there is a very strong argument for national intelligence in, uh, uh, um, organisation. Um, but, but within the defence force there is because if you look at the terms of the operations you're sitting at or places you're sitting yeah, that they are so there's that kind of and particularly looking at international terrorism international threats um, a whole range of those things that, 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 you're, that there is an intelligence there is within that and um, if you were within the UN intelligence uh, through the Irish intelligence would that be plugged in with the, the Five Eyes intelligence group? No, 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 no it doesn't work in that form what I'm talking about is is that so therefore you have an operation, you say in the Golan Heights, part of that would be looking at intelligence gathering. And so therefore it would be receiving briefings. Now it's, it's not, you're not, <laughs> this isn't cloak and dagger operations, et cetera, but it's just that you're part of this network of communications. Uh, it's not five eyes, it's not on that level. It is that where these operations are taking place, they're communicating with each other and they're communicating with head office and therefore these briefings. So therefore you become privy to that. And um, it is one of the benefits of Irish participation in EAM 
in UN-led missions or UN-mandated missions is that we become part of these networks. And it, is that, it, it all helps and aids. People look at what, why do we send troops to Lebanon? Why do we send troops to Mali? Why do we send troops to the Golan Heights? Why do we send troops to Congo, Liberia, etc.? And a lot of people say, oh, that's Ireland kind of just proving it's, it's uh, punching above its weight in the, in the United Nations. And part of that is that. Is that. But it's always in terms of what now that puts you part of a, of a network that is just get, that is constantly getting this. And you need this. And the whole thing about intelligence it is ever changing, it's ever moving. So you need to be part of and you need to be sitting at the table so that, that intelligence is being shared. It's not all of it. It's not, the, it's not the totality of it. It's not everything. But you're getting these things up. So now so we're plugged into one of these. And that's, and that's part of that. That's why I'm saying it's one of those opportunities. For example, you take in Sarajevo in uh, Bosnia. And um, we were part of the operation that was taking down Karadzic. There would have been Irish participation in that through the United Nations, through the, uh, the mission there, which is the UN, which is a UN mandated mission, but it was a NATO operated mission. So you're just part of all these networks. That's that, that's the point of it more than anything else. Um, we were part of the operation with um, repatriating Charles Taylor uh, from Liberia, the, the dictator there who went on the run. So that, that you're you, you're just part of these things. Okay. Okay. After Willie O'Dea resigned, you took a job with was it Berg Consultancy yeah. Firm in Brussels. Yeah. Uh, why did you take that job? That's, well, that's, like? that's actually a continuation of what I was doing beforehand, because that was the next generation of it. EIRI Associates had kind of started to break up around 2003-2004, um, and that was an ancillary thing I was doing that. Um, what we recognised is that we were trying... One of the things we tried to do was, was, set up, was to get involved in helping companies and set up European Works Councils in Ireland to do it under the Irish legislation. I would discover that there, there was... There was some people interested in doing it, and we didn't get involved in a few of them. But a lot of them were kind of saying, well, no, we want to be kind of closer to the action. So um, in terms of kind of making that a sustainable model, my colleague Tom had decided that he, he and his family are going to move to Brussels and base themselves there and to develop the consultancy on that side of it, because you're closer to more of the headquarter operations of companies. So that had that, and out of that came Berg, which is the Brussels European Employee Relations Group, which is a network of HR directors. So it's about 19 member companies. Um, and these would be major American multinationals. And it, um, so, so that, that's what had emerged from that. So basically when I'd left government, we kind of, I'd looked at there were one or two opportunities here that I was pursuing that didn't turn out. So that kind of resolved that into 2010, 2011. And this is into 2012, kind of, I've been like Tom and myself have remained very good friends in the meantime. And Tom said, look, we're kind of re I want to kind of look at putting more effort into the, the network. Would you be interested in coming in and kind of helping to develop that? And that's what I've been doing since. Which is building up the Berg network. So that and to the so, um, it was a series of meetings per year, training programs, uh, weekly newsletter, etc. So that stuff, and now that's now kind of developed on again since then, because particularly since the lockdown, um, we can't have meetings. So our three meetings per year that would have taken place in in, in Brussels and Barcelona is gone. Um, in 2012, 2013, we also kind of realised that GDPR was going to become a big issue. And that a lot of companies, in terms of when the GDPR was first highlighted, people said, ah, this is something that Google or Facebook and Twitter need to look at. It's not something that affects us. And we had, by looking at sitting down and going through the detail of GDPR, said, no, no, for a lot of companies, their biggest single database is their employee database, it's not necessarily the customer's database, et cetera. And therefore, this has huge ramifications because it's treating all data as if it's the same. And it's equating with the same risk rate across the board. 
So, I mean, how can you have a right to be forgotten for your employee data? Um, and then while the, the, the regulation did allow for that, it did kind of grasp that difference. It's, it was sticking employee data in a very, there was only about two or three sections that looked specifically at employee data and they were doing it rather crudely. So we got involved in sitting down in consultations with that and having a look at the initial stages of the legislative process in, in Brussels about changes that needed to be made in that. And for a long time, we were a lone voice. There were ourselves and two or three other organizations in Brussels saying, look, yeah, totally understand our stuff on Facebook, totally get all that stuff up there. But if you apply the same rules to employee data, you're going to make it almost impossible. You're going to increase the costs. The whole thing about data, data protection regulation, it was supposed to reduce costs and, and, and many be having a one-stop shop instead of having 27 different data protection regulations across Europe, you're now going to have basically one with 27 operations in terms of the, 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 the member states uh, regulatory authorities and they're still the primary ones. But instead of having to deal with all 27, we'll deal with one lead one and there, thereafter you're, you're deemed to have dealt with the others. And we said, no, it's okay, except there's an exclusion. They said it excluded data, a employee data from that. So now for one side of your data, you had, you, you had the benefits of one-stop shop. On the other side, you now had a new regulation that's at this level and then uh, national representatives, could, national member states could actually impose another level. So now you had two levels on employee data and that was going to increase the cost. That was going to increase the management costs of it. So we needed to sit down and talk about that. So that became a big, big process. So that was, that was heavily involved in that throughout uh, from 2012 to 2014. As I say, now what we're looking at in terms of lockdown, we can't have our members meetings, et cetera. So we're moving our operation online, but we're also seeing a huge development in remote working. So we're actually involved in a project at the moment on remote working and the right to disassociate, uh, the, 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 the right to disconnect. So therefore in terms of, because one of the things that's happening is that people are working from home, they tend to be connected a little bit longer. And I go, what is the right to disconnect? And I, and I think it's interesting that the, that the government and in fairness, I think it is one of the things they're doing very well is that they're now looking at bringing in uh, systems around this and the right to disconnect and on remote working in Ireland. Germany and Spain are now also looking at how giving workers a right to work from home. And how does that operate in practice? What are the elements of it? Is it a right to work from home? Are we moving to a hybrid model? And, they, and they're, they're, they're huge questions that have massive um, implications because in terms of, well, if you have a right to work from home, well, why does that have to be where you are now? Why isn't that somewhere where housing is cheaper, where accommodation is cheaper, where, where schools access is better, where childcare is cheaper? So there's a whole range of, and I think they're, they're becoming fascinating areas. Yeah, there, there. And you know all about that. You've been working from home. You're at the moment you're a freelance speechwriter. Freelance, which is not which is which is not a great business at the moment because nobody's giving speeches. Um, um like I mean that was a nice business model. So no prime most of what I do now is with Berg. Vast majority of what I do now is with Berg. It's about 85 percent of my of my working day is, is Berg. Um, those other opportunities, and, but th that was for a long time. I used to do some political consultancy. I would do some, and um, I've done some campaign work with various people. I was heavily involved in the the Shannon reform campaign. I did some initial work with the marriage equality campaign. So we've done that stuff, etc. So we've done bits and pieces, and I've done some work outside of there as well. Is there any other campaigns you you might like to work on in the future? I would give anything to work on the Scottish independence campaign. 
Go ahead. I think I think it's going to romp home. I think it's going to be absolutely yeah. No, by the way, it's totally inappropriate. <laughs> absolutely no purpose for me working on it. Number one, because um, I would say to people constantly, and particularly to people in Fianna Fáil, if you want to see how a political party can really operate, have a look at the Scottish National Party. Have a look at the SNP. SNP in many ways was based on the Fianna Fáil model, very broadly speaking. But if you talk to the SNP people 20, 30, 40 years ago, and I'm old enough to have spoken to people like that 20, 30, 40 years ago, they would have looked at Fianna Fáil as a model of how a modern, progressive, broadly nationalist party, and, 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 and people, I think people do kind of maybe shirk a little bit when they hear the word they're nationalist today, but a broadly national party. Um, operate and that and that the SNP kind of modeled itself very broadly speaking on that. I think we now have to take it the other way around. I think in terms of professional organisation, in terms of the ability to communicate with people. I mean, we look at in terms of like at the moment of the pandemic. Like I don't know. I think the last figure showed the SNP on fifty eight percent in Scotland. Nicola Sturgeon is by head and shoulders the most popular political leader in the UK. Um, Scottish independence is now regularly polling in the mid 50s in opinion polls um you've got i think the i can't remember was it a you i think it was a yougov poll a week ago was showing but broke it down by uh demographics when it broke it down by age group that now for the first time people 45 to 55 or 50, i think it was a can't remember was a uh, whatever that was in around that maybe it was either whether a 10 i don't can't remember was a 10 year percentile or a 15 year percentile but people in that age group are now 52, 53% in favour of Scottish independence. I think Scottish independence is coming. I think the issue is going to be when is the referendum and how is the referendum caused, because it has to be a vote of Westminster that grants it. Um, but if you look at this, the Scottish parliamentary elections are coming up next May, and the SNP, a party that's been in government for nearly 14 years, is now on 58%. That's just incredible. Um, so it shows that, and and by the way, Scotland is not handling. Scotland is doing okay on the pandemic, but its rates are, say, are, are comparable to here. It's putting places into lockdown. It's making very unpopular decisions, but there's a belief behind it. So what I'm saying is, is it doesn't always have to translate as in um, difficult situation. Government becomes unpopular. I think the SNP and particularly Nicola Sturgeon's leadership has proven that, and I think Fianna Fáil should. I have been advocating for years that Fianna Fáil improve its relationships with the SNP, that it solidify these. Um, and I think in fairness, somebody like Rory O'Hanlon and a couple of other people like that have been very strong advocates of this for a long time. So I kind of come to a fairly, I come to a little bit newer, but I mean that there is something that, that needs to be done there. That, so I think the Scottish independence campaign will be a fascinating campaign. Does that scare you, the UK breaking up? Nope. And I think I think and I think it's what has to inform the debate here between Brexit, COVID, and Scottish independence. We need to wake up to the discussion. I know they, they let me how Martin gave a good speech this morning on the shared island, but again, he kind of constantly tries to steer the conversation away from a referendum on this island versus United Ireland. He constantly tries to steer the conversation, and I understand what motivates that. But I think the problem, I think it's difficult. He's trying to stop a conversation going where where every bit of logic says it must go. Now, it doesn't have to happen in five or 10 years' time, but kind of saying, I don't want to talk about that now, let's talk about these other things. I think it is to disregard the, the, what's, what's happening. The COVID-19 is proving, look, the response on this island will only work when it's an all-island response. Um, I, and to all the logic, as Jim O'Callaghan said, in, a, in a kind of thing, I'm not too sure if it was in your podcast or it was in a separate discussion, but just the kind of the illogicality of partition is now being brought, brought it's been now been highlighted to us. 
So that we can have that conversation without frightening unionism. Unionism wants to be dealt with like an adult. Unionism wants people to talk to it as if there's a grown-ups and say, look, we need to have a serious discussion about this. They are not going to necessarily come along with it, but they want to be spoken to honestly. I think there is maybe, there is a view in unionism that Ireland at the moment is trying to pretend that this isn't on the agenda and say, oh, no, we're not going to talk about that. We're not going to talk. Don't forget it. We're going to put that to one side. And that's not the discussion. We need to have a straight-up discussion on this. <clears throat> I think Sinn Féin's answer to this about, oh, we need to get new move now to a unity referendum now is also the wrong one, because the one thing that 2016 and the Brexit referendum proved is if you have a referendum for which you are not prepared, you will not get the answer you think you're going to get. So I think we need, but we need to move, move to which I think the Scottish independence is part of that dynamic. If Scotland, if I, I, I think it's when Scotland breaks away. So whether the referendum is next year, the year after, two years time, whether there's a collapse and breakdown in in politics in Westminster, whatever happens, there will be a Scottish referendum at some point. And when that takes place, and for the longer that referendum is put off, the more chances of it passing. Boris Johnson is the greatest cheerleader for Scottish independence at the moment. And, we, but we've got to recognise that that affects the dynamic here. That will affect unionism. And the initial effect will be to drive unionism further into a silo. But thereafter, there will be kind of, well, what is the practical operation of the UK? Because the UK will move to a different subject of the will. <coughs> While Scotland will move out, it'll, there will still be a relationship. Because in the same way as this island, being on the same territory brings relationships that are there. And there are cultural relationships, there are heritage relationships, there are a whole range of relationships that independence isn't going to sunder. So we need to look at that and recognise that, that 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 has lessons for us, it has ramifications for us, and it has and it changes again. Going back to the thing about the politics and, and politics and momentum, it has a momentum on this side, and I recognise where that's going to. That's interesting. It's interesting that Scottish referendum is the first in your mind more than Irish unity. Uh, what are your thoughts on Irish unity? Because when I speak to young young people in Fianna Fáil, some people are just fervent supporters of it. Then others bring up the, what is it, like 14 billion pounds a year that the yeah. UK gives to Northern Irish? Yeah. For your thoughts? Look, the first thing is, is that why are people fervently passionate about United Ireland? I said, because the debate has changed. Brexit changed the debate entirely. Brexit changed the debate about relationships in this island as well. The, for, for, in, the, in the initial stages of Brexit, the biggest discussion was in terms of the Northern Ireland Protocol, the withdrawal agreement, how this is going to affect border relationships, how it affects access to Europe, how it affects this and so. Um, and Britain decided to go, the, the Tory government decided to go, this Tory government, I think, rather, rather than, than Theresa May, I think Theresa May did actually cop this, recognised that by going for the hardest possible Brexit, by going for out of the single market, out of the customs union, that that was going to have huge issues, huge ramifications. It also brought home the point that Northern Ireland didn't matter hugely. It mattered emotionally, it mattered kind of in terms of the rhetoric. But when it came down to the practical, that, that Britain, that, that Westminster was prepared to say, oh, look, we'll leave them. It was quite clear if there's going to be a border here, it is not going to be across the island on the, the current existing border. It was going to be in the Irish Sea if there's going to be a trade and customs border. And Westminster had known that and was basically nodding and winking at unionism and saying, look, we'll find a way around this. Remember, a year ago, a year, year and a half ago, we were told there'll be technological solutions that would render all of this absolutely unnecessary. That discussion is all gone. And that discussion was an illusion. It was an illusion to get unionists off the hook. And 
you, you've just got to recognize the logic of where this is going. I'm not saying United Ireland is inevitable. I'm not saying United Ireland is some nirvana. I'm not saying, by the way, I think I would strongly recommend to people that they go back and read Sean Lamas's Oxford Union speech. I can't remember if it was a 58 or 61. I always get the dates mixed up. Shortly after he became, so would have been 58, maybe his Oxford Union speech, and it's, it's available fairly widely. It's a really good document because, like, this is a, this is a man who had been in 1916, who was part of the War of Independence, who had gone through the whole situation, who was a founder of Fianna Fáil, was now a Taoiseach, but basically said, look, we're not going to prescribe how United Ireland looks, and I'm not going to pull down Stormont. Once there is a government in Northern Ireland, I'm not in favouring of dismantling that government. So the idea of a 32-county sovereign unitary state where everything ruled from Dublin, that had been, De Valera effectively had said that's not really practical years earlier, which is you can't turn back the clock. That would have been what you'd had if you'd, if you'd started out in 1916 and 1919 from all the same spot, but that wasn't what happened. So the nature of United Ireland leads to look at, and, and Michal Martin says this morning, well, it depends how you define United Ireland. I think we know what United Ireland is. The operation of it's a different matter. And I think that's what we need to kind of to get to grips with. And that's why people are moving this direction. Um, but trying to stop the conversation. I mean, what is one of the most interesting developments last year, and I think it will be another development later this year and the year after, et cetera, is the degree to which in terms of universities and colleges, in terms of, the, and I'm talking about the institutions themselves, most of it now looking at, I now have units, have academics, have research, have, have sections looking at, how could United Ireland operate? What are the models for us? How do you how do you get to that point? So you look at what Colin Harvey's doing at Queen's University, look what a whole range of people are doing. That. And I think that's that's huge work. And I think it should be encouraged. And I don't think it should be seen to be a threat. And I don't think we should be trying to trying to put the brakes on it. The fact that the shared island unit has 500 million, which it is going to spend on big projects, is really positive. I think that's a really good thing. But let's have the debate and have the discussion as well. And have the discussion in a very calm, rational way, which to say to unions, you're willing, you're welcome to be part of this. But if you don't want to, you can listen to it. I think Sinn Féin often approaches this in the theory that it is going to try and outreach to unionism. And then every so often we'll come up with some big statement, some outlandish action or do something like the, the story funeral or something like that, which just sends unionism back into a bunker. I think they're prepared to listen to Dublin, but they want Dublin to talk to them straight up. They want Dublin to say, listen, this is where we're about. Straight, curious enough, I think it's one of the few things that Radcliffe got right when he was Taoiseach. I think he actually changed the narrative around that. And we have to remember is that Northern Ireland nationalists sometimes are not wild about what Dublin does. And we have to convince them as much as anyone else. So there's, there's a whole range of discussions and narratives and conversations to take place. And let's start having them calmly. And let's have them starting doing it in a structured way. Um, and you're right, which is the cost is going to be there. But the cost is there because Northern Ireland doesn't work economically. And bizarrely, Brexit was an opportunity for that. Myself and Tom and Truberg put together a paper about two years ago saying, well, look, <clears throat> if you made Ireland the next special economic zone, it would have become extremely attractive to investment. And that would have been because, I mean, what you had is for, for too long, Northern Ireland was seen as a security problem. So there was a security fix. And therefore, putting 14 billion in from Westminster to settle this thing wasn't a huge pay price to pay. But that's because the, 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 actual, the domestic economy doesn't function. It's an economy based primarily on state inputs. But there is huge potential for, for, for private sector inputs there, for foreign direct investment. And by the way, it's starting to happen as well. 
it is a slightly imbalanced economy in Northern Ireland because the function is on the Belfast side. There's not as much on the border communities and certainly not as much in Derry. So therefore, what Colin Eastwood has been promoting in terms of university developing, university developing that sector in Derry is something that's in our interest as well. So there's lots of things that can happen around that that brings that 14 billion bill down that can be done today. So that so therefore, let's approach it from both sides. But recognise as, as if the United Kingdom is starting to break up, if England becomes the centre of it, with a fraternal relationship with Scotland and whatever the relationship ends up with Wales, because Wales is not at the same point in the, the, the cycle as, as Scotland is, but it will have an impact on Wales as well. Well, similarly in Northern Ireland. But again, coming to the COVID stuff, when you realise that in terms of the economy, in terms of health services, in terms of transport, in terms of a whole range of infrastructures, makes far more sense on an all-island basis. And there's a lot of work on going to us for years back um, and um, uh, was it Paul Quite has done some stuff on this? Um, we go back to uh, I think it was Ray McSherry, chaired the commission back in the nineties on this. So there's a lot of things around that 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 give us potential on this. So, and I think we should be having that discussion. We should be having that debate. And I understand. I hear what Michal Martin is saying on this stuff. I understand, and then I know there was some very good, good very, very good feedback to a shared item speech this morning. But oftentimes there's a hint, more than a hint of his speeches of, I don't want to talk about the national, I don't want to talk about the constitutional question because I'm afraid that's going to scare unionism. I think what scares unionism more is the idea that we're at some kind of salami slicing, that we're playing some game down here and we don't want to talk to them about it. And they're saying, well, look, we, we want to be talking. If you're going to have the discussion, let's, let's, let's both sit down and say where we're coming from. Um, and this could be, I mean, we shouldn't try to prescribe what the relationship is at the end of it, but we should have an ambition of what that relationship should be. We should have an idea of what it is. That was the purpose of the Agreed Ireland Forum back in the 80s. That was the purpose, and I was involved in the Forum for Peace and Reconciliation. And I was the secretary of the Fianna Fáil group that was, saying, and that was one of the things I was doing in the 80s and 90s that isn't on my LinkedIn, I think, which I was secretary of the Fianna Fáil group on that. And that did, when, when unionism started to engage, when Trevor Ringland, Roy McRoy Garland, and people on and on the union side started to come down, and don't imagine that there aren't progressives within unionism. I think far too often we have a very narrow view of unionism, including a narrow view of the DUP. There are progressives in both those parties. There are progressives right across those parties. So there are there are people who are looking at the same thing. But the way you encourage that debate within unionism is to make it clear that that's the debate we're having on our side. And. That, that's what I think we, we drive this forward. Okay, interesting. I see the poster there. The listeners won't see it, but the Lyndon B. <laughs> Johnson poster yeah. in the background. Where did that come from? That's a, it's, a, it's obviously it's a reproduction of an original. Um, I don't, um, bizarrely, where well, kind of both Irish people expect to be big fans of the Kennedys, etc. I am a, a huge time for it. I, I've read lots of stuff on Robert Kennedy. The person I think whose political legacy is the great, the one impresses me is, is LBJ, Lyndon Johnson. Now, to do that, you have to completely disregard Vietnam. You have to completely disregard everything that happened in Vietnam. And unfortunately, that's what completely tore his presidency apart. But Lyndon Johnson is the closest thing to a social democrat the America, America ever had as a president. If you go back to his great society, he, he delivered like Medicare, Medicaid, uh, public literacy program, civil rights act, civil rights bills, were all Lyndon Johnson. A man who was in many ways a charlatan, in many ways had frankly was corrupt in his early years. 
um, ended up as a multimillionaire, having come from as a dirt poor farmer, was started as a, as a, as a national school teacher. Um, but when he became president, his record is huge. And I would advise people to go back and read the Great Society debate, uh, his Great Society speech, where he talks about, he, want, he declared a war on poverty. Um, the Robert Carroll books on Johnson are great. He's just a superlative political operator. He's also the king of branding. LBJ, as I referred to him, was Lyndon Baines Johnson. His wife became known as Lady Bird Johnson, LBJ. His dog was Little Beagle Johnson, LBJ. His daughter was Linda Baines Johnson, LBJ. His other daughter was Lucy Baines Johnson. Everything was LBJ. He branded everything. He owned radio stations in Texas. He got highly, he made his money on, I think, investment in hydroelectric dams, et cetera, and taking kickbacks from fellows who had to get elected in the Senate. As when he was leader of majority leader and minority leader in the House and Senate, he was notorious for his ability to get stuff done. There's a thing called the Johnson treatment, which was he was about six foot two, six foot three. And they said, literally, he enveloped somebody. So he actually came right down around them. Um, I would try to say to people, go on to Google and um, Google, uh, not Google, go into YouTube, rather, and Google, um, oh, for hell, I'm not going to get the two of myself, go on to YouTube and search for LBJ tapes. There are his phone conversations. He re- Nixon got done for the, Nick, for the Watergate tapes. Nixon inherited the, the, the bugging system. It was Johnson who recorded everything that happened in the White House. He recorded all his conversations. He recorded all his phone calls, basically for his library and so that he would write his book afterwards. Nixon left it in there and then kind of upgraded it. Um, Nixon got done for his tapes. Johnson got away with his. Um, But Johnson's recordings of his phone conversations are very funny. He is colourful. He's crude. um, But he's a man who understood power better than almost any other American president I've known. Um, and while Nixon had a huge understanding of power, Nixon was socially inept and just wide man was in politics. Nobody understood apart from the power end of it. I think Johnson had a fundamental understanding of that. And it's not that he's a, he is a hero, I suppose, but I would strongly recommend to people, if you want to understand politics, you want to understand power, you want to understand how you can actually do good things with it, I would strongly recommend uh, for learning more about LBJ. And how would you do that? Any books you recommend? Uh, Robert Carroll has a series of books um, on which are, there's, there's, I think Master of the House is the one that looks at his years as the in Congress. But if you just if you, like, there are a couple of really good biographies. There's another one I can't think. Of, I think the guy is Anderson. I just can't. And I, unfortunately, the books are in the the office, um, and I just can't. I just can't remember the other. There's something as Anderson's name is who's, but that's it. But there's also there's a PBS uh, documentary series on the presidents. And I think it's on YouTube as well. If you go into it, there's a two there's there's four one hour parts on LBJ, but I think they're actually courses two two hour parts, and it's extremely good. And I, th- I think it's the longest one they do, um, because they kind of do it in two halves, which is his great record, his great achievements, what he did, how he reformed, and then the other side was what completely took took him down was the fact that he lied to the American people about Vietnam. And that is and that by the way that is part of his legacy as well. You cannot take one without the other. Um, go into YouTube and look up the LBJ library. Um, they have a series of really good talks about them there, and they also do a lot of really good interviews, etc. So it's, it's well worth well worth checking out. But he's just—he is a character. You can actually—he's flesh and blood. You can, he is warts and all. Um, like he was—he had a habit of kind of picking. He's also very crude. Um, I think he's not very crude. I, I, that's 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 way too touching me, parents. Um, but he has some great one-liners. 
my favorite one was his line was it says never tell a man to go to hell unless you can send him there and i don't think too many people in politics forget <laughs> that the truth of that line um, he describes somebody who was so dumb that he couldn't piss and chew gum at the same time. Um, there's a whole range of very great lines, and a lot of these end up on the tapes. That's great. I'll, I'll, I'll definitely have a look at them after this. Yeah. Um, on the topic of the US election, you had a column about a week ago. Two weeks ago, yeah. Um, yeah, correct me if I'm wrong. You said it's very likely that Biden yeah. will win, it's less likely that he will actually become president. Oh, no, no, I didn't say that. No, no, I no, no, he'll go Biden. Yeah. All right, yeah. correct no, me. Biden will become president. I said what will happen is, um, I think Biden's going to win. I think he's going to win quite convincingly. I think he's going to get 350, 360, 370 votes in the Electoral College. I think he's going to take Pennsylvania. I think he's neck and neck in, in Florida. I think he'll take Wisconsin and Michigan. Um, so he'll take all those swing states that he lost the last time. He's going to pick up Arizona. He's going to come. For, he's going to run it very tight. He won't win Texas, but he's going to run it very tight. He'll probably take the two. He could take the two Carolinas and Georgia. At which point he's wiped the borders up to three seventy. Um, but it's not that he won't become president. What I said was that I think when he becomes president, he will find his presidency quite difficult. Number one, because of state, he'll be leading a very fractious country. But number two, because the Democrats will have such expectations of him. He's managed to pull. Um, both wings of the Democratic Party, particularly the progressive reforming, slightly more social, social democratic wing behind them. Um, but they're not going to, they're, they're not, he, he's never going to be able to deliver for them and he's going to be a one-term president. So there's huge problems there. What I was actually referring to as well as whoever is, I, I do think there will be a transition of power. I don't think, I think Trump will try and hold on. I think there will be court actions and I think they'll be laughed out of court. Um, but what's going to be interesting is, um, so on the, you're, you're polling in two weeks time, um, well, it's less than two weeks, it's about 12 days, 11 or 12 days to go now. Um, you're going to take a couple of days to declare the result because it's going to take so long to open the postal ballots. That's what 20, 25% of people have already voted. A huge number have voted on, on mail-in ballots and they're going to take longer to count. Um, so you're going to have a small interregnum. It's, it's quite possible that on the ballots that are cast on the day that Trump will do reasonably well. I don't think he'll win. I think he'll do reasonably well. So it'll look a little bit tighter and it's going to take a few days. And in that space of three to four days where there's uncertainty, I think Trump is going to try and declare a victory and is probably going to try and go to the courts to declare him the winner. The courts will have to, and I don't care how many has in the Supreme Court, I was reading there about the other day about a case he had taken on his taxes, which where Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, the two guys he put on the Supreme Court, ruled against him. Um, and I think, I think Trump hasn't learned something that Johnson knew which is loyalty is, is what you offer in expectation of further advancement. It's not what you give for something you've just got. Once point belongs to the Supreme Court, that's all they've done to do. Um, so I don't think, I don't think that, I think he will, I think Biden will win. I think he'll win convincingly. I think he will become president. But I think the next two to three months in the States are going to be very, very difficult. Unfortunately, I think a lot of this is going to pour out onto the streets. Unfortunately, I think there is going to be violence in the streets in certain areas because Trump's people are going to be convinced, the QAnon, the conspiracy theories are going to be convinced that this has all been stacked against them. And this is an attempt to usurp the presidency from their man. And I think some of them will, will try to take action to their own hands. And I think there's going to be some uh, incitement towards that from Trump. But I don't think ultimately that's going to stop Biden becoming president. Okay, and we'll finish on this um, because it's probably the biggest question and it's so broad, so tackle it whatever way you want. We see China rising now, um, uh, becoming a new geopolitical power. They obviously want to become the most powerful nation in the world. 
Do you think the coronavirus pandemic has helped or hurt their cause? Wow, that's a big one. Um, I think hurt their cause, broad, broadly speaking. Um, China's been trying to do this on a couple of levels. If you look at China's the biggest investor in Africa and in various other, um, particularly outside of Europe and the Americas, China's the biggest investor. It's basically been, been pumping money in. Um, it's developing its infrastructure. But there's also problems within China. Even the coronavirus caused problems for Xi because you had the, the rise of the old da, uh, um, Deng faction. So it's not as plain sailing as it is for China. I think they do have a credibility damage. I think Trump let them off the hook by going so far out by this China virus nonsense. Um, I don't believe the conspiracy theory. I don't believe coronavirus was a conspiracy by China to damage the West, et cetera, and to sow dissension. It's not that they're not capable of it. I just don't think this is it. Um, but I think China is probably unbalanced and ends damaged by it because its relationship, I mean, while it did in the immediate aftermath of coronavirus, for example, it, put, it pumped a lot of money into Italy. It sent over a lot of PPE, et cetera, and it sent over experts, et cetera. I think it is... China itself internally has damaged its credibility because the government lied to its people for so long about what was happening. What was happening, and while there are question marks about the stats now at the moment, and I'm sure a lot of Chinese people are not absolutely convinced that their infection rates are as low as they are, I still think they have got to grips with it, um, because they have the the benefits of not having to ask people or not having to consultation, not have to bring people on board, they just drag them there. Um, but I think in internationally, I think China is damaged. And it depends on what's happening in the internal politics. Xi's grip on power has loosened a wee bit. Um, and I, I, so therefore, I've not, I, 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 but I look, I think this is something we need to be very, very careful of. And I think we need to, to, not, to, not, to not to be afraid of criticizing China more openly. I think there's a lot of times here that we're kind of saying, well, look, it's a world power and we, we depend a little off of this and that. Um, but we got, we got, I mean, in terms of, we also need, one of the things I think, maybe not directly related to that, maybe just slightly kind of go a step back from it is, the one of the things that the coronavirus has proven, and maybe you had this on other things as well, or even, even bizarrely in its own way in the Australia fires, is a move to regionalization rather than globalization. Is that not, it's not necessarily best that everything has to travel six weeks across from China. Like one of the lessons of the coronavirus was when we ran out of PPE, we were depending on the Chinese to ship us more. Um, suddenly we're kind of you know, going to the source of the infection for the, for the response to the infection. And I think people realize, no, we need to develop these capacities closer to hand. You have the situation about Huawei, and I'm not going to comment on what, they, what they're up to and what they're not up to, but Europe has decided that it needs to develop its own infrared, uh, IT technology, IT infrastructure, IT systems that are based on Europe, not based on buying in American stuff, not buying in, buying in Chinese stuff. So I think you're going to move to more regionalized metal, that therefore will make, will make China more powerful in a region, potentially in Africa as well, but not necessarily global. Um, so I think you, you might come back to bizarre thing from the 19th century, this kind of spheres of influence thing as well. We might be slaying a slow return to that. Um, with Trump has damaged the, the America's reputation at the same time. So it, you have so many vectors going, and I'm not exactly sure what the sum total of these vectors are at the end of it. I suspect it's not as strongly in China's favor as it might look at first, at first glance. So China's rise doesn't concern you as much as it's not that it doesn't concern me. I, I, I think it has to be watched, but I'm not. I don't think it's an extra. I don't think it's inevitable. I don't think it's absolutely inevitable. I think there are other there are other dynamics at play there that possibly kind of mitigate against it. My point was is, is that, but whoever we cannot 
evolved, that in terms of we need to call this out. And I think and I think that's one of the roles of Ireland in terms of particularly our new role in the Security Council is that we have to be absolutely fearless in doing that. Um, and I think that is an important role. And in similarly, in terms of our, of our participation in the um, European Union, we have to do that. And I think Europe is actually a good a good centre of a grand, a good counter centre centre point against Europe against uh, China. Um, but 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 some positive developments there in the rest of which is now that mean what this the development of this railroad connection, which is because because now going the whole way from Europe right across to China, there is now not everything has to go through air freight or ship freight etc. But in terms of like, I mean, just how much of the global economy ultimately is based in China in terms of its manufacturing. But, but, but these have consequences as well, which is you've got a huge manufacturing base in China, but what you also have is a growing and increasing middle class. And they're not satisfied to be left outside the power structures. They're not satisfied to be left outside these things. So I think that's another interesting part of the development. Okay. Okay. Well, listen, you've been very good with your time, Derek. Yeah. You've given me 90 minutes. I've just realised that. Yes, that's it. I should have put yeah, that. 90 minutes. Yeah. There we go. Let's, I enjoyed that. Thank you very much for that. And there we have it. That's our third ever podcast with Derek Mooney. If you enjoyed it, please rate us. It really helps. And if you have any idea of how you'd like to see this podcast change or improve in any way, that would just make it better for you. Or if you have any guests that you would like me to interview, send me an email at obrienh9 at tcd.ie. That's obrien with an E, H9 at tcd.ie. And I promise you I'll reply. So yeah, hope you enjoy the podcast and have a good rest of your life. Or don't, I don't care.